Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is, well, it's two things that you've kind of heard of before. I'm doing another Warhammer episode, but also it's another request from one of my followers. So this is a shout out to Mr. Grimass on Twitter. You know who you are. I mean, it might be Grimace or it might be Grimass. I, I, you know, hard to pronounce sometimes the Twitter account. What's the word on the street? Grimace. But he threw out to me quite a while ago this idea go, well, why don't you do something about the Lehman Russ tank? Because surely that gets you a chance to talk a bit about Warhammer, but also about the history of armored warfare. I was like, yeah, I like that. Thank you. So that's what we're doing now, this time round. That's a good grimace. So, as I have said before, if you're not a fan of Warhammer, doesn't matter really. I, I do it every now and then, but it's it's really interesting. This is a game that has been around since the 1980s, and they've been writing books and codexes and stories around this for as long as that. There are two flavours. There's the Yeldy Worldy with Dragony one. That is currently called Warhammer Age of Sigma. But in 1987, there was Warhammer 40,000 set in the far future, and it's still called Warhammer 40,000. So that's the one we're talking about this time round. And I mentioned, just in passing, the Lehman Russ tank. Shoot the tires out, Lou. Uh, it's a tank, Chief. You know what? I'm getting real tired of your excuses. So let's talk about the tank in the game. And then I'm going to say why is it called the Lehman Russ. And then I'm going to go into a big bit of really interesting lore about Warhammer. Both then and now as well. So... Trust me, unless you have no interest in history or military history, there's something here for you. I, I promise you that. So, the Lehman Rust tank is the absolute standard battle tank for the Astra Militarum, the Imperial Guard. These are your standard grunts, your standard human soldiers in the world of Warhammer 40,000. There are ones that are sort of like loosely based on the Russians. There are ones that are loosely based on the Imperial British. You know, there are various names that sort of like in, in uniform styles. Some of them very old, still only in metal. The sta absolute standard is the Cadians, which are just the most vanilla Imperial Guard guardsmen that you could think of. Just think of something that looks pretty similar to a standard modern infantry soldier. 
perhaps with a little tiny bit more armor on them, but only a little bit. And the thing about the Imperial Guard, which I've always liked, is if you've got something like the Tau, well, that's straight out of anime. It's a bunch of sort of slightly weird aliens who are got mech suits on, and there's there's no equivalent to that in the real world. And the, the Space Marines, they're like nine foot tall, covered in power armor, genetically enhanced. Some of them are psychic. Again, nothing like that in the real world. And there is a little bit of it. It's like, sometimes I want something that could almost be I'm simulating World War Two, And that's really what the Astra Militarum are. You have commissars, which is exactly what the Red Army had in World War Two, who make sure that nobody wavers in, amongst the infantry. And they are garbage. They're not... They're terrible shots, because the Space Marines are well-trained and super soldiers, so these are just average people. Oh no, they're shooting at us! Good thing bad guys are such terrible shots! And they've got las guns as opposed to bolters, or as people sort of mock them, they're basically torches or flashlights that sort of blink off and on, because everybody's got such good armor and they don't really have much penetrating skill, but you're allowed, they're, they're cheap, you're allowed a lot of infantry, but they also have perhaps more vehicles than any other faction out there in the world of Warhammer. And a lot of it you can recognize. They have basically heavy artillery. They have tanks. They have, in essence, armored personnel carriers. All these things there are equivalents of in the modern world. And then they do have some slightly more unusual stuff. Like they got sentinels, which are like little scout walkers on two legs. Sound familiar? ATST from Star Wars, anybody? And they have other things as well, like I particularly like the Melkador Infernus, which is just an absolutely gigantic flamethrower on tracks. Yes, there were, particularly in World War II, tanks which had flame units attached to them, but really this thing is so much bigger with so much more flame to it. It even has a little hopper behind it for all the fuel which is pretty much the thing that sold it to me. And that thing is devastating on the table, and it's also pretty devastating if you hit it and it blows up. Don't stand near it either way, friend or foe. So yeah, there's loads and loads of equipment that you can see there are clear parallels to the real world here, which I quite like. I have to say that since the invasion of Ukraine, I've sort of gone off them a little bit. Because you've now seen in the modern world happening today what endless artillery barrages can do to cities. And a lot of the terrain that Games Workshop creates are these kind of ruined cityscapes, which are very useful to play and very sort of cool to paint. But nowadays, just feels a little too real. So maybe I should spend more time with the Tau or the Psychic Space Marines or all the other ones. But amongst all of these pieces of equipment, there is the absolutely standard Lehman Russ. And like a lot of particularly World War II era tanks, there is a chassis, and then after that, there are lots of different weapon systems that you can put on it. There's a standard battle cannon, and basically, a Lehman Russ looks like a slightly stubby, slightly too high World War II tank. That's with, like, normal equipment could have a massive heavy plasma cannon on the front of it, something like that didn't exist in 1943. But you get the idea. If you looked at a table of Warhammer, and it was one of the more unusual armies, let's say, 
Chaos Demons versus Tau, apart from simple size of figure, you wouldn't have a clear idea what's going on unless you're into the lore. But if I showed you my Imperial Guard army, you'd sit there and go, I, I get it. Okay, that, that looks like a battle group that could be fighting in Ukraine right now. It's, I, I get the idea here. There's mortar teams and there's anti-aircraft equipment and etc, etc, etc. So, there we go. The Lehman Russ is the workhorse of the Astra Militarum. There are literally millions of them being constructed in the world of Warhammer at any given point. There's almost a never-ending supply of them, and they're pretty good on the battlefield. They're not super expensive, they're pretty durable, they kick out a lot of firepower, so if you have a mixture of those with some cheap infantry, they can actually be quite hard to push off the table even if you do have a demon prince of corn bearing down on them. That's what's going on. I understand. But where's the name come from? And the answer is... Lehman Russ is actually one of the Primarchs. So you're now going, what's a Primarch, unless you really know your Warhammer? I don't know anything about what you're talking about. And so, when it was originally told in the late 1980s, there was... Okay, so this big thing, the Horus Heresy, that's had this huge renaissance at the time of recording. They've just brought out the second edition, and there's lots of plastic kits coming out. It was a very special... It's a niche within a niche, for heaven's sakes. But it's getting a lot of love at the moment. And so the idea is, it's Warhammer 40,000. But somebody thought, well, okay, this stuff didn't come from nowhere. So basically, Warhammer 30,000. See what you did there? There was a fracturing between the Space Marine Legions. Some of them remained loyal. Some of them fell to chaos. And then there was a civil war led by one of the Primarchs called Horus. Horus Lupercal. And he is basically what it's all named after, the Horus Heresy. And so this was basically the Imperium of Man at its absolute peak in terms of technology and expansion and so on and so forth, and other species such as the Tau didn't even exist at that time 10,000 years ago. They're basically still Stone Age. Their technology's caught up in the last 10,000 years. So this is just a, another fun way to play the game. Different rules, they're originally based on 7th edition, we're now on 9th edition, but they stuck with the kind of 7th edition rules, slightly streamlined. Yada yada yada, you get the idea. Sound interesting, there is a sort of one-off box. It's fairly expensive, I'm, I'm off the top of my head it's about like £180, but you basically get two small armies, the rules, dice, pretty much everything you need in there apart from painting and building the stuff. It's a pretty good deal if you want to start off in that area, and then if you want to add extra bits, you're going to have to buy other kits, and that's the way it goes. But, when it was first brought out, the reason for this was because they had brought out this game called Adeptus Titanicus with these big, stompy robots, and they only had enough moulds to create one type of big, stompy robot. So, this is clearly a human big, stompy robot, Titan. I'm going to call them a Titan from now on. They're actually Warlord Titans in the original box. Why aren't they fighting Eldar, Space Elves, Titans, or Orc Titans, or whatever? And they just came up with this idea, going, oh, there's a Civil War, so they're using the same kit, so we can therefore use exactly the same robots, just times two. Very clever idea, and it just led into this whole cottage industry, and as I said, a niche within a niche about the Horus Heresy. People got more interested in it. The first time I heard about it, I was like, I want to know more. Horus Heresy, that sounds really cool. Horus is the war god of the ancient Egyptians. What's going on there, then? And... There was basically a two-page excerpt in, I think it might have been White Dwarf, or it might have been one of the supplements, which just had a brief explanation of what happened in it. And in it, they'd describe Horus 
as the most beloved son of the emperor. This has been spun off, going forwards in the law to, not literally son, and basically what the emperor of mankind, this hugely powerful, hugely psychic, hugely all-knowing, lives forever type of guy who sort of brought humanity together under his guidance. He created the Space Marines and they needed leaders, so he created a Primarch. He gene using his own genetic material. Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. He basically creates not exactly a clone of himself, but like these incredibly enhanced human beings that have certain elements of him in them, and each one of them leads a legion, and their characteristics kind of pass down to the peoples of their legions, because the legions themselves kind of draw their genetic material from the Primarch and sort of kind of gets a little tricky, doesn't make a huge amount of sense. He also made these people not just with genetics, but also doing a deal with the Dark Gods and then tried to trick the Dark Gods, the Gods of Chaos, and then was surprised that the Gods of Chaos then tricked him. This makes no sense. I know some people go, oh, it's very clever. It shows the hubris of the Emperor, and it's like, or it could just be bad writing, because it makes no sense. It, you know, to trick another human being, I get it. Why would you trick beings that you can barely comprehend and not think that they might notice you're pulling a trick? Also, the Chaos Gods, for the, so you can have a civil war, didn't steal all the Primarchs away. They only stole half of them away so that he still got half the Primarchs. Again, if they're that angry and, and that duplicitous, why not steal all of them? Or why not have a situation where they're in the process of stealing them and the Emperor turns up and shoes them away? No, instead they just decide that they're going to stick to their side of the, of the deal because that's what the word chaos means. So you can see why this isn't perhaps the best written part of the law, but it has been built on and built on and built on, and I'm pretty sure I'm making some Warhammer fans angry as I'm talking right now. How very day. <laughs> Never been so insulted. Anyway, the other great thing is some of these Primarchs have very different ideas and abilities. Some of them are immortal. Some of them are incredibly good tacticians. Well, I know which one of those two I would rather have. Yeah, anyway. Then one of them is called Lehman Russ. And what happens is all of the Primarchs are spread across the galaxy and then they're slowly brought back under the Emperor and then they're sort of brought to their legions and then they have a, a jolly good time, okay? Lehman Russ, he ends up running the legion that is called the Space Wolves. And as I say it, it's ridiculous, but is now so ingrained in the law that it doesn't sound ridiculous. And basically, they're Vikings. That's what they are. They've all got Scandinavian names, and, you know, they're sort of like berserker units, and there's lots of wolf units, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And yeah, fine. Have fun with it. Enjoy. But Lehman Russ, funnily enough, following the kind of Scandinavian cliche here, he was considered one of the best one-on-one -on -one fighters out of all of the Primarchs. Probably Angron was up there in terms of just physical one-on-one -on -one fighting ability. And anyway, Lehman Ross, he's sort of there at the burning of Prospero and all this kind of stuff, all these epic moments in the heresy, but he's too far away for when the Chaos group of legions finally attack Terra. And that's the big showdown that ends the Horus heresy. Basically... The Loyalists managed to withstand the assault by the Chaos people. 
and Horus has a final fight with the Emperor after slaying another Primarch, and then the Emperor kills Horus, but not before Horus mortally wounds the Emperor, and the Emperor then is put on the Golden Throne to sort of keep him in sort of suspended animation for the next 10,000 years, still sitting there in Warhammer 40,000. And Lehman Russ eventually turns up slightly after the Battle for Terror, but, you know, the Space Wolves had done their bit in the war as a whole, and he hangs around for another couple of centuries. And this is the thing, he isn't interacting with the Imperial Guard all this time, he's with the Space Wolves and having a jolly good time drinking mead. And then about 200 years after the events of the Horus Heresy, he disappears. And after that, nobody knows where he's gone. Clearly they're going to bring him in again at some point, some way, in some kind of figure format, and people would certainly want to buy that figure. Now, for the record, you can buy all the Primarch figures from the Horus Heresy era. They're resins, they're really fiddly to put together with, unlike plastic, and they're about £80 each. They're not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. Some of them have survived to the 40,000 side, although some of them have turned into actual Chaos Demons. So yes, there's that. But the only sort of Primark that could basically get away with playing the plastic Warhammer 40,000 version in the Horus Heresy would be Gulliman, Reboot Gulliman of the Ultramarines. But yes, you get amazing models like Moltarian, who's the sort of the Nurgle, he's gone fallen to chaos, he's in charge of the Death Guard, and He's just sort of covered in flies, and he's massive, and he's got wings now, which obviously even a Primarch wouldn't actually have. So, yeah, they're very distorted in the 40,000 world, but in the 30,000 they just look like very angry guys in huge power armor suits. And Lehman Russ is one of those, with wonderful hair by L'Oreal, presumably. Because I'm worth it. And he's just disappeared. Never to be seen again so far. The, the story about his disappearance is at least 20 years old. Still waiting for him to turn up again. Mind you, Horus Heresy game has been around for 10 years, I'm going to say. And still no sign of a figure for the Emperor, even though he definitely fought in the Horus Heresy. You can get Horus if you want, but still no sign of the Emperor. I do have a knockoff one, which I picked up from eBay. It basically looks, I think it's called the Falcon Warrior, or the Eagle Warrior. Basically, it's the Emperor, but they couldn't call it that, and he's a pretty cool figure. Costed a lot less than what something like that from Games Workshop would cost. But anyway, that's what we've got, and therefore, because Lehman Russ is just one of these icons of the Imperium, brave warrior, fought in the Horus Heresy, disappeared mysteriously, you know, absolutely inextricably linked with the Space Wolves, which is one of these great heroic, loyalist legions of the and now chapters of the imperium i get why lesser men would have named a piece of weaponry after them after all we we kind of do this in the modern world in the raf you can fly a tornado that's an actual elemental natural disaster it's not a machine but we call the machine after a elemental disaster there's of course the famous spitfire that isn't renowned for spitting fire although obviously it did have guns and and we so we do you know the mustang and and so on and so forth so these things exist and happen like get it and it's a bit of fun and so lehman russ just happens to be the name of the standard battle tank in the imperial guard and i've painted a whole bunch of them slightly fiddly 
to put the sponson guns on, just putting that out there. But the rest of it's a joy to build, and I've built a lot of them, and yeah, and I can roll a lot out against you if you want to play a game with me. Let's play a game. So, that leads us into, what is a tank? Why are they called a tank? And who invented tanks exactly? So, let's talk tanks. Because they're such an important part of the modern armed services, a number of countries have tried to make claims to them. A classic one would be a medieval knight was like a tank of its time. No, it wasn't. Okay, it's a guy on a horse, and he was covered in armour, but he didn't have any kind of artillery or projectile side of things. That's not what a purpose of a knight was. A knight was more like a battering ram, so no, can't have that as an analogy. Well, you know, Leonardo da Vinci sketched out this kind of circular thing made out of wood which had cannons in it. That's a tank. <coughs> no, it isn't. It was never built, and it's not a tank. It's basically a mobile fortress, and there's all kinds of problems with the design, and oh yeah, wood isn't bulletproof. So if another cannon shot at it, it would just fall in on itself. Lovely sketch, though, Leonardo. You're an amazing genius in other areas. Thank you so much. Then I've heard Americans say, well, you do know, round about 1900, in very sort of boggy, marshy areas, the Caterpillar track was used on tractors to pull these machines through the mud. So that's the first tank, because tanks had, had these sort of Caterpillar tractors on them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No, that's a clever way to move your tractor around. Sorry. The tank is a British invention. What is a tank? It's a weapons platform that is armoured and capable of going across all major types of terrain. You put all those three things together, and that's basically what makes a tank. So, for example, armoured vehicles that existed prior to that, you can put metal plates onto a car and perhaps put a machine gun on it, and that's pretty close to being... A tank, except that those things don't work very well as soon as they go off-road. The idea with a tank 
And why they were designed in the first place was because of this trench warfare in World War I. They first saw service in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme, but there were other major events where the tanks were involved. Now, JFC Fuller, like, like anything in life, particularly when it's a time of war, there are a number of parents to this any particular project, but JFC Fuller is widely considered the main daddy of tank design. Why is it called a tank? Because they wanted to keep it secret. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. And so the original design didn't have the, the guns on it. The rest of it was there. They're kind of, you, you all know what a World War I tank looks like. There is no turret on them yet. And they're kind of lozenge-shaped with these two big tracks on either side. And the body of the tank in the, in the middle is where the engine and the crew are. And because it didn't have any guns on it, the idea was, and the rumour that went round, and Churchill was involved in the invention of the tank and, and the spreading of this disinformation, is that it was actually literally a mobile tank of water to give troops the sustenance they need on the Eastern Front. So these were all going to be shipped out to Russia before it all collapsed in the Soviet Union and the whole civil war there. And that was a lie. It was a clever lie, but the name stuck. So that is where we get the name from. That is why they were invented. And then it comes to the fact that I've heard some people say, well, you know, the, the tank in World War I was completely ineffectual. No, it wasn't. The two basic arguments as to why they were rubbish is, one, they could only go six miles an hour, and two, they broke down quite a lot. Both those things are true. But new technology is never reliable. This is the first time anybody had thought to, and the original name for them, which Churchill came up with, was land ships, because really it is like a cruiser going across land as opposed to going across water, covered in armour plating, lots of cannons, ready to shoot at the enemy. That's the basic idea. So it's new technology. Nobody had ever been able to drag a, a heavily armoured thing across a muddy field before. So yeah, some of them are going to break down. But if you build enough of them, then even if 50% of them break down, you still have 100 of them trundling along towards the enemy. Now, the six miles an hour thing. They weren't meant to be zooming off ahead. The idea was, and indeed to this day, you want to have combined arms. What do I mean by that? A tank on its own is actually surprisingly vulnerable. There is poor visibility for the driver and gunner, and so if they end up getting surrounded by enemy infantry, they could blow off a track and now it's disabled, or they could jam a gun into the visor and start firing it into inside the tank. Even if you miss somebody, the bullet will ricochet inside the armoured interior and probably cause some damage or indeed harm somebody. So yeah, you want to make sure that the tank has support other tanks, and particularly infantry. I happen to know, I've heard this from an actual tank commander, that if a tank is being attacked by multiple infantry, it's called an infestation. And actually what they'll do in modern tank tactics is they'll actually ask for other tanks to cover them in machine gun fire because those machine gun bullets will not penetrate the armour, but what it will do is kill the infantry trying to clamber onto the tank. And this is referred to, at least in the British military, as delousing. So an infestation, then you delouse yourself from the infestation. Pretty grim, that. So, 
The point of a World War I tank was, yes, it's trundling forwards and it's invulnerable to small arms fire. Indeed, it could be knocked out by artillery, but the artillery has to hit a moving target and also has to be told where the tank is. But most importantly, it's there to support the infantry. Basically, the infantry would stand behind the tank and walk towards it, in which case... A human being over rough terrain, you're doing well if you can do four miles an hour. Six miles an hour is, you're doing brilliantly at that point. The thing is, a human being with equipment and so on and so forth doesn't need a tank to go any faster than six miles an hour if you're doing trench warfare. The reason why these tanks were particularly long was to make sure that they could trundle straight over trench emplacements. And indeed, the first time they were used, the Germans took one look at these lumbering beasts roaring towards them, firing off their weapons, and just ran a mile. That's not metaphorical. They ran a mile away from their trenches. So, yeah, that worked pretty well then. In World War I, there were basically two types of tank. There were various marks as they improved the design and the engine build, etc. But if you're talking about weapons layout, again with those sponsons, if you're not sure what a sponson is, it's the side guns as opposed to the main turret. And basically you either had two machine guns, two Vicar heavy machine guns, and those were called female, or you had two six-pounder cannons, those were male. So there you go, you either had something that went bang... <laughs> or went rat-a-tat-tat and both were very effective against infantry in trenches. The average infantryman had nothing that could stop a tank. There were, later on, some snipers using anti-tank guns, basically very large rifles with very large caliber bullets that could pierce the frontal armor of the tanks, but there weren't many of those and all the British did was add a bit more armour to the front, and then that's problem solved. Being inside one of these tanks was horrible. The engine took up most of space, it was spewing out diesel fumes everywhere, it was incredibly loud, there was no way that you could communicate with each other in anything other than hand signals, and you would quite often want to open it up to just get some fresh air. They would also report back, not with a radio, but with pigeons. We are very on the edges of technology here with this one. In the very first first tanks, the Mark 1s that went into the battlefield, the front of it was the tank that you recognised, but for some reason, it also had what is in essence wagon wheels behind it, which they got rid of pretty quickly because there was no need for them. They thought that they were there for sort of stabilisation. No. The Germans did indeed create a tank before the end of the war. It was terrible, it was designed by loads of people, and the crew was over a dozen, uh, dozen large. There was only machine gun version, uh, sorry, a correction, I've been told this before. The machine gun was the most common one, there were a couple of, I mean, we are talking about a few dozen tanks, as opposed to the hundreds of the of British tanks by comparison. There were a few with very small cannons on them. They were very high-sided. They were very people-intensive. They were a complete mess. Everyone thinks of German tanks as being brilliant. That was the next war. This war, rubbish. Sometimes the Germans even captured British tanks, painted the Iron Cross on them, and started using them. You're not going to win a war if you start repurposing the enemy's weapons against them and sort of rebuild them. The French actually had the first tank with a turret. There were these very small ones built by Renault, and two small two-man tanks, but they are far more modern-looking to the modern eye than the British ones. But the British had more tanks than anybody else. They were used later on in the Russian Civil War. 
and on and on a few years later. But the thing is, the British knew that they had to mix an artillery barrage first, soften up the enemy, bring in the tanks, bring in the infantry as well. But the problem was tanks were very good at taking territory. They weren't very good at holding it because if they just sit there, they're basically a pillbox which is sticking up out the ground and therefore can be targeted by artillery. They would definitely step in the right direction. They did make a difference in World War I. They weren't pointless, but we didn't get to see the real power of tanks until the next World War, which I'm now going to skip on to, and I'm going to sort of go past pretty quickly because you kind of all know the story of World War II and their tanks. By now, tanks are much faster, they are more reliable. There are problems. I just want to demystify a few things. First of all, the Tiger tank, the German Panzer, by Panzer is just the German for tank, basically. And they were feared, and quite rightly so, they had very thick armor. So a lot of allied equipment, things like bazookas, could not penetrate a Tiger's armor head on. And they had the 88mm cannon on them. The 88mm, which ended up being a highly effective anti-tank weapon, actually started off and was continued to be used. It was initially designed as an anti-aircraft weapon. You had a bunch of them pointing up in the air and firing. And that worked against planes, if you could hit them, far more fast moving, but it worked brilliantly for something like a Tiger tank. But not that many were made, and because it looked quite similar to the Mark IV Panzer, there were a lot of reports of Tigers when actually they were Panzer Mark IVs. So, there we go. But the thing is, when we get to the sort of super things, like, for example, the King Tiger tank, which was uh, the chassis. I can never remember which way around it is. Either the chassis or the turret. It wasn't both. Were designed by Mr. Ferdinand Porsche. You know, of Porsche cars fame. He also in he also designed the Kubelwagen, which is the kind of thing you always see the German officers driving around in in World War II movies. Sort of the German version of a jeep. Uh, so yeah, he absolutely was part of the war effort of Germany in World War II. But hey, he also co-designed the Volkswagen Beetle, and which is why the very first Porsche looks quite a lot like a Beetle, and then went on to design some of the best sports cars ever made. But the thing is, with these other types of tanks, particularly something like the King Tiger, if in and of itself it's an amazing tank, it's it's better than pretty much any other tank designed by any country in the world in World War II. But there are two fundamental problems with it, which actually makes it one of the biggest wastes of space and effort of World War II. Firstly, it was very complex to build, and it was being built by slave labor. Do you know what? Polish prisoners of war have zero interest in making sure this tank works. The amount of breakdowns of something like the King Tiger wasn't that far off of the kind of breakdowns of World War I tanks. If on a good day it was working, it could be anything on the battlefield, but it very rarely had a good day. Secondly, it was ridiculously heavy, and they just didn't make that many of them. They would have been better off making far more Mark IVs than just one or two of these, or a Panther here and there. So they kind of got obsessed with these sort of super tanks that actually were more effort than than it was worth. And let's face it, that's a good thing because we really wanted to win World War II and definitely the Nazis were the bad guys, okay? Are we the baddies? The ultimate ridiculousness was the, there was the mouse tank. It's a joke because mouse is the German for mouse. 
and it was just a shade over a hundred tons, the heaviest tank ever built. It actually, its engine w would normally run a submarine, that's how much energy they needed for it, and only two were ever made, one was captured, none of them ever saw any battles or anything like that. They had to actually add breathing apparatus because they realized there was no bridge in Europe that could take its weight, so it's going to have to go through rivers. It's an example of bigger isn't necessarily better by comparison. Biggest tank battle in history started on the 5th of July 1943, the Battle of Kursk, which went on for weeks. More than 2,000 tanks were clanking around this battlefield in modern-day Ukraine. Uh, the dust clouds were kicked up, more than a million men were fighting there. It was the epic moment where Germany, at the end of the is actually called Operation Citadel. We remember it as the Battle of Kursk. That's what they, the Germans called it. From that point onwards, the Germans basically made no major breakthroughs eastwards ever again in the war. They'd thrown everything they'd got at the Russians. They did make some advances, some 20 miles, but they just ran out of troops and tanks. And it was just an, it just absorbed. It was like a shock wave through the front line of the Russians and, and the, well, the Soviets, I should say, and they knew they were coming and they'd built defences of tank traps and, and pits and various anti-tank fortifications not a hundred miles long, a hundred miles deep. It's a ridiculous uh, attempt uh, at sort of stopping the Third Reich that only the sheer will of someone like Joseph Stalin in charge of the unquestioning Red Army could have got away with. It was... An amazing achievement to stop that much men, materials, and explosives heading your way. But it worked. So there we go. Battle of Kursk is about as big as you're ever going to get with a tank battle. And then, then we get the end of World War II. And we get the Korean War. Lots of tank battles there. We get Vietnam. Tanks were there, but that's not what... They, they're not designed to just trundle through jungles. So they really didn't see much service there. There was the Falklands War, no tanks there because they're too heavy for either side to ship over to the Falklands. And so we get to the Gulf War of 1991. Now, in that point, in the words of General Norman Schwarzkopf, he said, basically, this is the first time in history, or first time in a long time in history, where somebody with less of everything decided to fight a conventional war. Since 1991, every time you have a war in someone like Afghanistan or back in Iraq, Everybody knows they can't beat the American forces just one-on-one, -on -one, head to head, and so they melt into the, into the local population or hide in caves or whatever, and that works pretty well, and tanks are useless in that situation. But in this scenario, there were multiple tank battles in the first Gulf War in 1991. Iraq, largely flat, lots of its desert, perfect for tank maneuverability and warfare, except the Iraqis didn't have any night vision, whereas the Americans had all of it, and also the Americans at the time were using depleted uranium shells, which are now highly controversial, they're now banned, but basically they split through Iraqi tanks like they were made out, of, made out of paper, basically. And so pretty much every single tank battle from the Gulf War shows you exactly how powerful a tank can be if you know what you're doing with them. So that is the Gulf War, and like I say, they, they exist in Afghanistan, they're there in the, in the Iraq War of 2003 onwards. So they're still around, they're, they're still being used. 
And then, of course, let's go to jump forwards to Ukraine right now, where literally hundreds of tanks have been destroyed. As far as I'm aware, at time of recording, because we, you know, we have limited information, I don't think, and this makes sense, I don't think there's been any major tank-on-tank battles, and yet the Russians have lost hundreds of them. Why? Through artillery, through drone strikes. I'm not saying that the age of the tank is over. You still want armour, you still want mobility, you still want actual firepower to back you up. If Ukraine does carry out successful counterattacks and starts their own campaigns of recapturing land, they will need tanks. Every unit helps to save our people from terror, but we have to speed up. Air defense and artillery, armored vehicles and tanks, which we are negotiating about with you and which actually will make the victory. To push forwards and act as screens for the infantry and take out strong points. Tanks aren't done yet, but like I said, kind of at the beginning of the history bit, this sort of mythology of them being invulnerable just doesn't stand up at any era. Got a few more points to say, but just before I do that, I'm just going to always say, look, I'm at Gem Deducci on Twitter. Say hi. Also, also, please, please tell somebody about this podcast. Get a friend to subscribe to it. If you haven't subscribed to it, do me a favor and hit that button and please, please give us a review. Thank you very much. So what this is talking about with the with modern tanks is I am aware that there are sort of smoke screens that tanks use and have been using for decades. And a number of the modern smoke screens actually have little bits of foil in them, which sort of messes up targeting devices and, and things like that. But with these new drones, and indeed something like an Apache helicopter can from miles away, that's not an exaggeration, fire a guided missile that can just go up into the air and then down. You cannot equally armour all sides of a tank. The traditional area where it's weakest is at the rear because it's coming straight at you, so you're unlikely to ever get a hit on the back of a, of a tank. But another area where they're particularly vulnerable is on the top because who the hell attacks them straight down apart from aircraft and they're not going to be on the battlefield all that often. And it turns out with modern drone technology, yeah, they're waiting for you. Another term for some drone technology is loitering munitions. Some of these things can be up in the air for 15 minutes flying around at about 60 miles an hour. So you've got several pounds of high explosive just sort of hovering around hovering around with a camera on it and when it spots an enemy tank it can just drop straight down and bang you've just disabled a tank and obviously a drone costs significantly less than a tank so in a simple war of attrition a simple war of economy you're going to use up a lot more money building tanks and seeing them destroyed than having these basically kamikaze drones blow up so the era of the tank isn't over It's just we have to think about its uses, but that's always been the same way. We've never had a war where tanks have had zero fatalities. Tanks always get destroyed. They're another piece of equipment. They're not a magic fix to anything. And all of this can be linked back to the Lehman Rust tank from Warhammer. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, another podcast coming soon. Thank you. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.